Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, just start off just uh, asking that the Lord would use His Word today to encourage our hearts. Lord, I pray, Father, that as we open Your Word today, I pray, Father, that You would help us to see what Your Word wants us to know. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would protect this place from the enemy. We pray, Father, that You would allow, that You would have freedom to work in each of our hearts, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would just guide and direct us, Lord, and we pray, Father, that as we open your word, that your spirit would very clearly teach us. We pray that we would see Christ and Christ glorified, Lord, and we pray, Father, that you would be honored in everything in our life. And Lord, I just lift up the person that is in the midst of the storm right now. Lord, there are those that come in. We kind of look like we got it together. But there are things that are painful that we are going through. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, even though everything is unsettled, even though chaos seems to be at every corner. Lord, help us to find our peace in you, to find that you are in control of all things. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5 today. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, we live in a world that's fascinated with the spiritual realm. Now, I know you've seen a lot of these out in front yards the last couple weeks. I want you to know we're not having a haunted church today. Uh, we will be talking about this. It has to do with our passage there's three graveyard testimonies that we're going to be looking at in a little bit. We will see a demon-possessed man. We will see an afflicted woman and a conflicted father. But I want you to know that I think it's pretty obvious that we live in a world that is fascinated with the spiritual realm, especially known, it's noticed around this time of the year. It's actually the spiritual realm is big business, if you look and you see how much money is made on haunted schoolhouses and you can even have your own private tour of a cemetery or an old insane asylum um, and they'll, they'll even equip you with your own poltergeist equipment. Um, and then there, of course there's scary movies that are out. Now I want you to know that this guy here I don't like any of that stuff. Let me give you the practical reasons. One, I don't want to pay 15 bucks for a haunted schoolhouse. Number two, cemeteries creep me out. And scary movies, you, you wouldn't even want me next to you in a scary movie because I scream like a little girl and I, I, just, I, I just crawl out of my skin. It's just not a good scene. Now, I know, I think most people... See, this stuff is just mere entertainment and harmless. But I wonder if we were to actually see the spiritual realm, as we're going to see in Mark 5 today, how people would respond to actual demonic and spiritual world that's going on around us. Because it is very real. It is very much going on around us. Now, we'll look at that in a moment in Mark chapter 5. Now, around this time of the year, I'm often asked, Pastor, what, what do you think about Halloween? Okay, what do you think about what goes on in, in trick-or-treating and all that kind of stuff? I'm going to give you my perspective since we're kind of on this topic so that uh, you just know what it is. You may agree or disagree. But for the most part, I think Christians have 
over-sensationalized this and have taken the wrong stance. I think that we should use Halloween as an opportunity to show the love of Christ, not be a prude, okay? To show the love of Christ to our community, that's what we're to do. I don't think most parents are setting up pentagrams on their floor and holding coven meetings with their children, holding hands, worshiping Satan. I don't think that's the case. For the most part, I think people like to dress up and like to get candy. And I know for ourselves, when the weather is permitting, we like to set up a little bonfire out on our patio, front uh, driveway, hand out hot chocolate and and donuts to the kids, and it gives us a chance to really interact with our neighbors. And so we try to do that in a series of other things that we do throughout the year because we want to love our community. So you may agree, may not agree, that's okay. I just wanted to give you a different perspective. Now, having said that, I do think that most people do not understand nor realize the full power that is in the spiritual world that is around us. And if we really had our eyes open to it, I think it would freak us out. I really do. And I think it would be far scarier than anything that man can contrive. I think it would really, it really would affect us deeply. We're going to take a look at the demonic world in at least the first testimony that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, I have two parts of our message. The first part is what I call graveyard testimonies. The graveyard is representing death, it's rep representing despair, it's representing just the gloom in life. And we're going to see three testimonies of individuals that have gone through death and despair, and we're going to hear from them. Then we're going to take the second part of our message and look at all three and see what are the common strains of faith that are worked into these stories that we can reap and that we can gain for ourselves. So let's start off with the graveyard testimonies. The first graveyard testimony is the graveyard of demons. We'll take a look at chapter 5, verses 1, and 1 through 20. Uh, follow along as it is read for you. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And a herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now this first story takes place in a place called Gerasene, which is a Roman Gentile settlement. Now this was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now as soon as the Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat and they get onto this land into this Gentile place, all of a sudden they're greeted with this demon-possessed man who is living amongst the tombs. He's living amongst the dead. Kind of creepy, I know. So you got to know that in that day and age that the tombs weren't quite like what we have. They were often like caves on the side of a hill. And so this is the man that's dwelling in and out of these caves, and it's on a hillside apart from the town. But people, the way that it's, the town is configured, could hear the crying and the wailing of this demon-possessed man. I'm sure that it, it freaked them out enough that they wanted to apprehend him, tie him up, chain him up, get him out of the, out of the sight of every single person so that they could do away with him. Now understand this. What characterized this demon-possessed man were several things. First of all was supernatural strength. We'll understand that in a minute. He could just tear through the chains and the fetters that, were, that they tried to put on him. There was also an affinity towards death. That's why he lived amongst the tomb, but I think he was also a bit of an outcast as well. He was in constant torment. Now, the ESV says he cried out. The better translation in the original language is that he shrieked wildly. Then there was also self-mutilation. He was constantly cutting himself. Now, I want you to look at the characteristics here. This is typical with the enemy. See, the enemy always has a desire to kill, steal, and destroy and to mar the image of God that is stamped into, the, into human beings. That's why the enemy loves abortion. That's why the enemy loves uh, suicide. That's why the enemy loves all forms of abuse, because his goal is to always kill, to steal, and to destroy. And it tells us that we have an enemy that is fi fighting violently against God and against the image of God. Now at this point, I think if I were one of the disciples and I just saw this shrieking demon-possessed man chasing me, I might or chasing up to Christ, I might be thinking to myself, hmm, I might want to you know, pursue a different occupation uh, or a different pursuit in life. But these disciples are watching all that's taking place. But notice what happens with the demon that comes before Christ. The man that rushes up and the demon that speaks. The demon says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now in this statement, the demon was forced, forced to acknowledge that he was in the presence of God. It, is, it was this presence that forced the man and the demon down to their knees. 
Please understand, when we hear in Philippians that there is going to be a day that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, doesn't matter whether it's a believer in God or not, there is, when we're in the presence of God, you will fall to your knees. And that's exactly what happens here. And the demon begs Jesus not to torture him, but to send him out from there. Now, when a demon is begging Jesus not to torture, and he's begging him that way, it shows that Jesus has incredible power over this individual. Now, when Jesus asks him his name, notice what the demon says. His name is Legion. Now, what we might not know is that a legion consisted in the Roman colonies, in the Roman army, army, it consisted of 6,826 men to be exact. So within this person, within this man, was an organized army of demons that were living inside of him. It was an irresistible power that he could not get away from. He allowed through his sinful lifestyle somehow for these demons to come reside within him. And he was powerless in and of himself to get rid of this legion of demons. But this is where Jesus comes in. They are commanded by Christ that they must leave, and so they beg that he would send them out, and so he sends them out into a herd of swine, 2,000 total. And so you have all these pigs squealing, going over a hillside, into the water, and they drown. Again, death is surrounded by this demon world. Now the Gentiles that were taking care of the pigs all of a sudden started scratching their head like, okay, there's all of my master's revenue into the water, dead. What am I going to do with this? This is, a, this is a travesty. Now I know it was a Gentile group because Jews would not be hurting pigs because pigs were considered unclean to Jews. This was a Gentile colony. And so They go into town, and they tell the townspeople, they're trying to cover themselves. The townspeople come out to investigate. Probably the owners of the pigs would come out, and all of a sudden they see something so amazing. They see the very person that's been a problem to their society, the very person that they tried to chain up before, but they couldn't do it. He's sitting there fully clothed, which was unusual, and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Christ. Now, this supernatural miracle totally wreaked havoc on these individuals, the townspeople, and they couldn't understand this miracle. All they could see was the financial devastation, and they wanted him gone. Please leave. Please leave us. But then on the other hand, you have this previously demon-possessed person who is sitting in his right mind, and he is saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. I, I, I just want, I want to be with you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go tell your family what God has done. And so in this first graveyard testimony, what we have is a crazy, demon-possessed man who is now in his right mind, and he's set free. Now the second graveyard toast testimony is the graveyard of illness, Take a look at chapter 5, verse 21 to 34, as it's read to you. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. 
Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now here we have an afflicted woman who had suffered a bleeding disorder for 12 years. Now, medically, this probably was a, either a chronic menstrual disorder or it was a uterine hemorrhage that had taken place. But either way, this woman was in a desperate situation because according to Jewish law, this woman would have been considered unclean because of the constant bleeding, according to Leviticus 15. And so since this was a perpetual uncleanliness of her no one could touch her. No one could be around her. This woman was excluded from all normal social functions in life. She was uh, not free to be in contact with the people that she loved because if she did, then they would be defiled themselves. And so like the demon-possessed man, she was an outcast in a graveyard of her own illness. She was as good as dead by society's standards. She was kind of the walking dead. And no way would she ever be hugged or loved or feel the warmth of embrace of, their, of her own family because of her defilement. No wonder she went to great extremes in order to get well. She went to the doctor. She paid everything that she had, and she, it was to no avail. Can you imagine the spark of hope that all of a sudden comes into her mind and her heart when she hears that there is this man who has been healing others? And unlike the religious leaders who would keep at arm's distance from people that were defiled and diseased, the, paral the paralytic, the, the person that's a leopard, the people that should be kept outside of the city, can you imagine what she felt when she heard that this man who was willing to be with, to touch, to help those that were defiled, and how, she, how he was different than the religious leaders, can you imagine what she went through when she heard about him coming to her town? Naturally, she wanted to blend in with the crowd. The crowd of people were people that were looking for a mirror, another miracle. They were pressing in around Christ. They were wanting to find out what he was going to do next. And she just thought, I'm going to go kind of under the radar. I'm going to sneak into the crowd. And if I could just... If I could just touch, if I could just touch the hem of his robe, if I could just get close to his very presence, if I can reach out 
and touch his clothing, I'll be healed. And so this is exactly what she does. People are pressing in around Christ. He's having dialogue with individuals. And all of a sudden, just someone brushes his robe. And Jesus looks around and says, who touched me? Disciples are like, well, <laughs> I mean, look around, Jesus. I mean, it's kind of crazy that you ask that question. People are pressing around all around you. What do you mean? Who touched me? And here's this woman. As soon as she touched his robe, there was something that was an old, familiar feeling that she had not felt for 12 years, and that was wholeness, being well, and she was healed. Our passage tells us that Jesus perceived in himself that the power had gone out from him and immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? Now, please don't think that Jesus was caught off guard by this or didn't know what was happening. Jesus asked a question, as he often did, I think to make a beautiful point to those that were around. And the beautiful point was that this woman was healed due to her faith. See, this second graveyard testimony was a good-as-dead woman, outcast, who was now healed and clean. The third testimony is the graveyard of death. Take a look at verse 35 to 43. Listen to this. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, in this testimony, what we see here is a conflicted father and his need at hand. Now, Jairus was a synagogue ruler. Now, what that means is that he was in charge of the scripture reading. He was in charge of the teaching and the adhering to the ancestral traditions of the synagogue. He had a very important job to be able to maintain it. Please note that up to this point, most of the religious leaders that have been coming in conflict with Christ has been just that, a conflict. They have been against him. And so for Jairus to come and be with Christ and to petition him, he was risking himself his own position as a synagogue ruler because they didn't like Christ. He ruffled their feathers. He didn't, they didn't like what he stood for. He was getting with the down close to these sinners, these people that are impure, and he's touching them. He's being with them, and they were to live a separate lifestyle. They were not to be a part of that. And so he, took, with great risk, took um, his own job and, and put it in jeopardy. But that's what you do when your family's on the line. Jairus had seen 
he had heard what Christ had done. When Jairus went to him, he said, Come, lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be made well and live. See, when Jairus said that, he knew, according to the tense of the words that are used here, he knew that death was imminent. That if Jesus didn't come, her, his daughter, his baby girl, she was going to be gone. She would not live. Christ sensed her heart. He went with her. Now on the way to meeting this little girl, please note what happens. The woman that had been bleeding interrupts the journey. Now I think this is important to note because time was of the essence. Time was of the essence. This girl is on the death's doorstep, the door, death's doorstep. And so she you can't hinder this. But this woman comes and all of a sudden Jesus stops to minister to her. I could see the father kind of pacing back and forth knowing that his daughter his her life is on the line. But here's what we know. Jesus's timing is always perfect. He's never caught off by surprise. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded ourselves that Jesus will show up and he will minister, he will work when he needs to at just the right time. Keep that in mind in our own circumstances. Well, the fact is, while Jesus is speaking to the crowd, one of Jairus' helpers came and gave the report. He says, don't bother the master anymore. Why trouble the teacher? Your daughter is dead. Jairus' worst nightmare came into reality. The very words that no dad ever wants to hear about their child. He heard. Oh, the panic that had to be on his heart. Jesus sensed that panic, and he looks at him in the eyes, and he says, Don't fear. Just believe. And I wonder how many people, including this guy, he has to look into your eyes and say, don't worry. Don't fear. Just believe. Just believe. What happened next, I think, will be forever etched into the mind of this father. Jesus took his three closest disciples to Jairus' house. Peter, James, and John. Now, I believe that that was partly to establish a testimony, a witness, that there was going to be a miracle that was going to take place. Jesus dismisses the mourners. Most likely, they were paid professional mourners that they would hire in to come and to mourn the death. That was part of Jewish tradition. And he says, stop your crying. And as soon as they stopped crying, they started mocking when Jesus said, no, she's not dead, she's just asleep, they laughed at him, they mocked him, but he put them out. Jesus allows just his family and three disciples to be there, 
in the room, and there's Jairus' daughter laying on the counter, laying on her bed, probably has become discolored, turned a little blue. The color is out of her. The lifelessness is no longer there. It's very obvious that she is gone. But then Jesus takes her hand, and he says with an authoritative command, he says, little girl, I say to you, only what God can do, I say to you, arise. Immediately, color comes into her flesh. Immediately, she sits up, and she starts walking, and she is reunited with her family. And the passage in the ESV says that they immediately were overcome with amazement. Again, I don't think the, the English translation does it justice. Really, in the, the literal translation is that they were immediately out of their minds crazy with great excitement. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be jumping up and down? Wouldn't you be like hollering, hallelujah, oh my goodness, I've seen a miracle. A miracle has happened. My baby girl, she was gone, but now she's back. She's back. And this was her grave, graveyard testimony. Hopeless parents who had lost their baby girl, but now she was back again. She's risen from the dead. What's your graveyard testimony? Maybe you're in the midst of it. What kind of crazy, insane circumstances do you find yourself in? Where there seems to be no hope. Maybe there's a lot of despair. Please know this. Please know that hope shines brightest out of our despair. Friends, we need to remember that God has the last word in every aspect of our life. And whatever we're going through, he has the last word. Now what I want to do to conclude here is I want us to look at the journey of faith of these three individuals. The demon-possessed man, the, the woman that had been bleeding, and the father that lost his daughter. Because there's a journey there that we need to learn from. And what I hope is that we're going to look at the common thread that is in all three of these stories, and I hope that we can apply it, that we can pull it out, that we would take note of these things, and that we would actually apply it to our own heart, to our own life. Maybe in the things that we're going, it would be like medicine to our soul, that it would be healing to the wounds that we have. Maybe it would simply be encouragement because things are going really good right now. It doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be a dark day. Maybe it's simply a ray of, of light that encourages our heart. Here are three things that we learn from these three stories in this journey of faith. I'm going to give you step one, step two, step three, because it's a journey. In step one of the journey, notice in each of the stories that each individual saw Christ for who he was and their need for him, and they fell before him. Get that. They saw Christ for who he was and their need for him, and they fell down right before him. Take a look at that. Verse 6, the demon-possessed man in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Coincidence? Well, take a look at verse 33, the afflicted woman. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And what did she do? She fell before him and told him the whole truth. Coincidence? No. Number three, the conflicted father in verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Do you see the theme that we fall before Christ? See, the first step of faith that each of us have to have, which is probably the most difficult faith because we have pride that says, I can do it. I'm man enough. I'm woman enough. I can do it on my own. And the first step in our faith is to say, I can't. I can't do it on my own. I need a Savior. I need to fall before Christ. Now notice that the majority of people in this scenario, in all three testimonies, did not fall before Christ. The people that were in the town of the demon-possessed man, they just wanted to get rid of Jesus. They didn't fall before Jesus. The people that were surrounding Christ when the bleeding woman came in, they weren't bowing before Christ. They were looking for another miracle. They were looking for a show. The mourners, they weren't bowing before Christ. They were mocking. Do you understand that the majority of people are not going to have faith? The majority of people are going to think that this kind of faith is absolutely stupid and idiotic. So when you have a relative, when you have a friend, when you have those around you that just think your faith is crazy and nuts, you're right. They are going to think that. The majority of people will. But there will be those that will come to that place, and maybe it will even be some that would mock, that would eventually get to the place of saying, I need Christ. See, here's the truth that we glean in this point, and that is this. Faith comes when we know that we are unable, but that he is able because he's God. Faith comes when we know that we are unable, but that he is able because he is God. My friends, it starts with salvation, doesn't it? When we come to realize that we need a Savior in our life. I know I'm speaking to some here that this church thing has been somewhat of a new thing for you. You didn't kind of grow, you didn't grow up this way. You didn't grow up religious. You didn't grow up going to church. Some people, you, maybe you did, but you're coming back. And you, you sense that there's some need. Well, the first and foremost need is to recognize that you need to bow before Christ. You've got to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection and say, I need you. I need you. I believe that there are some that have recognized this, but they need God. They need to recognize God in their daily life. Some of it is just being in obedience to the simple things that Jesus says and bowing to what Jesus has said that we should do. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a baptism. And there are some people that if I ask you the question, have you been baptized? If we were to have a personal conversation, some of you would say, no, not really. And I'd say, well, what are you holding on to? What are you waiting for? See, what Jesus wants is for us to take steps of obedience. And that step of obedience, his full blessing, is not going to be on your life until you do the things that he has asked you to do. He didn't give baptism as kind of a, okay, yeah, maybe if I feel like it. He did it because he wants people to take a stand that won't be afraid, that will say, I will stand up for Jesus Christ. 
I will be associated with his death, his burial, and resurrection. Let me ask you, is that you? Then be obedient, but fall down before Christ and say, okay, I will. I will because it's what Christ asked of me, and I, with great pride, want to stand up for him. If you're not, if you haven't been baptized as a believer, take that step. It's going to be an incredible celebration. you got family here that wants to celebrate with you. It's our step of faith. Step two is this. Each of these individuals experienced, note this, they experienced the miraculous as a result of reaching out for Christ in faith, as a result of reaching out in faith. Now, the faith of the woman and the faith of the father are pretty evident because Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well. And he says to the father, just believe and you get indication of that. It's a little bit harder to see the faith of the demon-possessed man, but I believe that it was there. In the case of the demon-possessed man, faith is not necessarily proclaimed, but it is seen. Now, there's a reason that this man ran to Christ. He was the only one who had the power and the strength, and I think he sensed that, to overthrow the legion of demons that was inside of him. Obviously, this legion, this army of demons had complete control and power over him. He was mutilating himself. He was hurting himself. He was screeching. He was in pain and agony. And somewhere along the line, I'm sure the man in his mind thought, this is out of control. What do I do? And when he sees Christ... The man comes and kneels down, but the demon begs. Why did the man kneel down before Christ? He was coming to the very one who had the solution, the only one that could handle his problem. And somehow he knew that his situation was so desperate that he was just under this crushing weight, and now he was reaching out to the only one that could actually solve his problem. Have you ever felt like you were being crushed by the problems around you. You see this as a result of the demon-possessed man reaching out to Christ. He was set free and was mentally restored. As a result of the bleeding woman reaching out for Christ, she was set free from her 12-year physical affliction, and she gained peace of heart. As a result of the father of the dead child reaching out to Christ, he was set free from his deep anguish, and he gained his 12-year-old daughter back again. Here's the truth that we glean, glean from this. Faith will cause us to reach out to the one who is able. My friends, what are you holding on to? What are you trusting in? Is it your mental wit? Is it your physical ability? Is it your youthful vitality? I want you to know all that could be gone in a minute. I could have several of you stand up to testify to that. I won't point you out, though. <laughs> I could testify to that. My friends, we can't allow our stubborn pride from reaching out to Christ and holding on to him. And here's what we need to know. We demonstrate our faith daily, daily in the way that we reach out and hold on to Christ. Through his word, through prayer, we demonstrate our faith that way. Here's the third thing that we learn. 
Third thing we see in each one of these testimonies, each became a testimony of God's grace, a verbal testimony, a visual testimony of God's grace. The previously demon-possessed man traveled, wanted to travel and be with Jesus, but Jesus says, no, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the passage says he went throughout the Decapolis. The word Decapolis means a 10-city region within that area that were Roman colonies. I want you to go out. And that's what he did, and he went above and beyond to all the 10-city regions and testified. The previously sick woman is instructed in verse 34. Jesus says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Can you imagine that she could now go in public? All the people that pitied her before, but now were saying, why are you here? I'm healed. I'm healed. Let me tell you what Christ did for me. I am healed. I have been made whole again. What a testimony she had. And we see the previously saddened father is instructed by Christ in verse 43. Notice what he says. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. See, at this point in ministry, Jesus didn't want people to gather just because he rose a a child from the dead. But they would know. People would know the child was well. There would be people that actually knew the child would die. But he said, don't go out and proclaim that in time. I call this a delayed testimony because we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all wrote about this, and now the world knows. See, our last truth that we glean here is this. Faith will eagerly give credit to God. How's this kind of faith seen in our life? You see, that's why we have a circle of responsibility, my friends, because we want to publicly tell people what God is miraculously doing in each of our lives. So what do we do with these graveyard testimonies? What do we do with this journey of faith? What we do is that each of us have our own story and each of us apply it in our own way. Let me tell you what this guy, what my wife and I are currently doing. Lee and I have our hearts heavy because of someone in our family that doesn't know God, is far from God. And to be honest, our hearts are heavy that Christ would be formed in you as a church. So how do we deal with that? How do we handle that? Number one, we see Christ and we fall before him. We fall before him with our problems and we are trusting him that he will reach the one that we love. That he will help Christ being formed in each of us in here. And we kneel before him because we are absolutely dependent upon him. Number two, we are looking for and fully expecting a miracle. A miracle in the life of our loved ones. A miracle within this body. We are fully expecting and believing that that will happen. In our faith, we are reaching out and holding on to Christ because I'm telling you, I need an anchor to my soul. And Christ is that anchor. And number three, we give testimony. We are always going to give God glory and praise for what he has done in our life. And that's what we do. 
And when God has done something in our life, we tell other people. You proclaim it. You tell other people. Put it on Facebook. Whatever you need to do, you give glory to God because that's what we're called to do. We are to point to him in every aspect of our life. During this last song, we're going to sing that song that Mitch and Josh did earlier, the last word. And now I want us to sing it. But as we do, I want you to sing it as your own prayer to God. And I want you to ask in your heart that God would do the miraculous in your life. Reach out to him. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to sit, you can sit. If you want to stand with your hands fully extended, you can do that. Well, let's ask God to do the miraculous. And then when he does, make sure that you tell somebody about it. <laughs>